Um, hey, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Matthew 18. Um, we've asked uh, Dick Johnson to read the scripture of the day, and so I'm going to ask Dick to go ahead and make your way on up uh, to the podium. And uh, if you are able, I'm going to ask you to please stand and face the center of the room as uh, Dick makes his way on up there. And we stand because we believe this is the Word of God. And we read from the center of the room uh, to remind us that Scripture is to be central in our lives. And so, Dick, whenever you are ready, uh, please read from Matthew chapter 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Dick, thank you very much. You may be seated. Again, we are very excited to have Dr. Uh, Felix Theo Nugraha. Uh, or as he says, just call me Felix, here uh, with us. He is the 12th president of Western Theological Seminary. Um, Felix most recently served as vice president of Trinity International University and Divinity School in the Chicago area. Um, as I said earlier, uh, we are a part of a larger community called the Reformed Church in America, and um, Felix has deep Reformed uh, roots. He's an ordained minister in the RCA. Uh, he is the son of an RCA pastor. Uh, he was born in Indonesia to Chinese Christian parents, and then when he was 12 years old, they moved to the Bay, Bay Area in California uh, as his father accepted a call to serve a Reformed Church in that area. And so I'm going to uh, invite Felix to come on up, and would you please give him a warm welcome for me? Welcome, Felix. Thanks. Twin Falls Reformed Church, good morning. It's such a joy and a privilege for me to be here. I have heard much about your ministry, about your faithfulness to Jesus and to the gospel, to the wonderful ministry that you are doing here. I've heard a lot from Brian Vriesman about the work that has been going on. I heard so much, so many good things about Chuck and John and the ministry team uh, that is here now. This is my first time in Idaho. So yesterday I got to, uh, I got to see a couple of base jumpers, which is a lot of fun. And then hiked up to the spot where Evil Knievel tried to jump over the Snake River Canyon. And that was really, really fun. And then on Monday, I'll get to tour my first dairy farm, a full-on tour. And now my wife, who is a Swedish uh, German descent, uh, grew up on a dairy farm. So she told me that I will 
uh, be unable to fully identify with her life story unless I got to milk a cow. So I try to tell her that, honey, everything is automated now. Like they just, you know, go on this thing and the machines and everything. I don't know if I get a chance to do that. But she insists that I will never be able to fully understand who she is unless I get to milk a cow. So I am looking forward to Monday. <laughs> it is so glad. I'm so glad to be here. It is such a joy for me to be here today. Forgiveness. It seems to be such an easy concept. When someone has done something wrong against you, you ought to forgive them. You ought to extend forgiveness. But what does it mean to forgive? One popular phrase that we often say is to forgive and forget. Once you forgive someone the wrong that he or she has done, then you ought to forget that he has ever happened. But forgiveness is not quite as simple as that, is it? So being an academician and a president of a theological seminary, I decided to consult the most reliable and trustworthy source for research, Google. <laughs> and I found a couple of quotes about forgiveness. Here's one by Oscar Wilde. Always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. <laughs> to forgive, to annoy. That's new. Here's another one by Sir Francis Bacon. We read that we ought to forgive our enemies. But there's nothing in there that says that we ought to forgive our friends. I wonder what's going on in his life when he wrote that. Here's another one. If you can't forgive and forget, pick one. <laughs> and here's another one. And I found this one to be particularly honest. Most of us can forgive and forget. We just don't want the other person to forget that we forgave. Oof, that's true, isn't it? If we're truly honest with ourselves. I think it's far easier to forgive when things can be restored. It's far easier to forgive someone for hitting my car because I know that that car can be fixed. It's far easier to forgive someone who stole my money knowing that I can always earn the money back. But it's a lot harder to extend forgiveness when things cannot be restored. Have you ever had that experience where you extend forgiveness but at the same time that you extend forgiveness, you know that the consequence of that action done against you, the consequences of those things will never be fully recovered and you extend forgiveness even as you find yourselves wishing that you are just in a bad nightmare and you hope to wake up and find out that this has all just been a dream. I read a story of a man by the name of Celestin. He shared about how he lost his father, his stepbrother, his stepbrother's wife and two children and an adopted sister. And he also lost neighbors, friends and members of the church that he was pastoring. How do you extend forgiveness in a situation like that where lives are lost and cannot be restored? Hey, when we study God's Word, it's clear. There is no exception to extending forgiveness. 
There is no wrong so great, no crime so painful, no offense so indignifying, no irritation so unbearable that we are exempted from extending forgiveness. In fact, as Jesus said in Matthew 18, even if the offense took place over and over and over and over again, seven times 70, the command remains the same. Forgive. So Twin Falls, today I want to reflect together with us on forgiveness. And I want, if you have your Bible with you open still, keep a tab on Matthew chapter 18. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. I want to anchor the sermon today on Matthew chapter 6 verse 12. In the prayer that our Lord Jesus Christ taught us to pray. Matthew chapter 6 verse 12 reads this. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I want to suggest to us that the big idea contained in this passage is this. As because our God is a forgiving God, we must live as a forgiven people. Because our God is a forgiving God, we must live as a forgiven people. And I want to suggest two specific ways that we, ought, how, that we ought to live as a forgiven people. The first is this. To live as a forgiven people is to embrace God's forgiveness. To live as forgiven people is to embrace God's forgiveness. Matthew chapter 6 verse 12 is a petition found in the larger prayer that we often call the Lord's Prayer. It is a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And while it is a prayer that we pray to God, it is also a prayer that reveals who God is. It's a prayer that reminds us of the nature of God. Because when we pray, Lord, give us today our daily bread, we are reminded that God is the God who provides. When we pray that God lead us not into temptation, we are reminded that our God is a good shepherd that lead us to green pasture and beside still waters. And when we pray, deliver us from evil, we are reminded it is God and God alone who saves. So similarly, when we pray, Lord, forgive us our debts, we are reminded that God is the God who forgives. As the psalmist reminds us, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Friends, do we live our lives as a people who has embraced God's forgiveness? I'm married to my wife, Esther, and two of us have two kids. My oldest son, Isaiah, is 12 years old, and my daughter, Nora, is 10. And as any parents would do, from the moment, from, from moment when they were young, we try to teach them about forgiveness. And what we have discovered as they have grown up is that Isaiah is one of those kids who is ready to forgive. In fact, the moment that you point out that he has done something wrong, his face drops, his body scrunches down, and he's just waiting for the lecture to be over. And the moment the lecture is over, he looks up at you and says, Dad, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. 
You don't have to spend much time at all to get Isaiah to the point where he is ready to ask for forgiveness. Nora engages in what I call a strategy of three Ds. Denial, deflection, and disagreement. When she has done something wrong, first of all, she would deny it. She would go, what happened? I don't know who did it. And I said, Nora, you had that thing. You were the last person to hold that in your hands. And once you get that, once you get to that point, uh, she realizes that she can't get out of it. She tries to deflect. Well, do you know what Isaiah did last night? Well, you don't even know. We never told you. And she starts listing all the things that he has done wrong. So we have to tell her, Nora, it's not about him right now, although it's good for me to know. <laughs> this is about you. So then, once she realizes, okay, that didn't work, she would disagree with you. Well, it depends on what you mean by taking things without permission. What does permission really mean? And you have to get to a point where she finally says, okay, fine. Daddy, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Some of us are like Isaiah when it comes to embracing God's forgiveness. We know that we have fallen short of God's holiness, the standard that He has set. So it seems appropriate to pray, Lord, forgive us. As Pastor Chuck remind, mentioned last week, some of us are very much aware of our guilt, our sin before God. So we daily seek God's grace. And when we have received God's grace, our hearts are filled with gratitude for the forgiveness that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. But some of us, I wonder, are more like Nora in the way they, we approach God. We are perfectionists. We strive daily to do our best and to think that we have done something wrong, that we have fallen short. It's hard for us to accept. Others of us are fiercely independent, so we don't like to ask for help. We have worked hard in our lives so that we can be self-sufficient. But to admit and to ask God for forgiveness in many ways feel like the ultimate admission of our own inability to help ourselves. When we pray, we open the door to admit Jesus into our distress and say, Lord, help us because we can't forgive ourselves of our sin. Only you can to come to our lives and to forgive us of our sin. And for some of us, that is a hard prayer to pray. But I think that difficulty is one of the reasons why forgive us our debt is in the Lord's prayer. We need to be reminded that our God is a forgiving God. We need to be reminded that our God is a merciful God and that He is ready to forgive. Now, forgiveness is not this vague object. It's not this vague prayer either. We are told we are to pray to ask for forgi forgiveness. Lord, forgive us. But there's also an object in view. Forgive us our debts. What are we asking God to forgive? Our debt. And what is our debt against God? As Romans 3, 20, 23 states, We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6.23, we are told that this, the wages of our sin is death. The debt that we have against God is our own sin. And because of our, because of our own rebellious nature against God, the consequence of our sin is death. 
And yet when God forgives us, he gives us the gift of God, eternal life in and through Jesus. So I reflected on this. I realized that it is quite unpopular in our day and age to remind ourselves that we are a sinful people. In fact, it is quite unpopular in our day and age to talk about sin at all. As a society, we have come up with quite a few descriptions so that we don't have to talk about sin. A lapse of judgment. A moment of weakness. A moment of indiscretion. A lack of clarity. Sometimes we blame it on our personality. You know, that's just how I'm wired. Some of you know the personality test called the Enneagram. Now let me be clear. I was a psychology major in college, and I fully affirmed the, the goodness of personality tests to help us understand ourselves and understand others. But sometimes I wonder if we hide behind these personality tests instead of admitting our own sinfulness. Let me use myself as an example. According to the Enneagram, I am a type 3. I am what they call an achiever. And... They, the Enneagram also tells me that one of my weaknesses as, a, an, as an achiever is moral ambiguity. In my quest, in my thirst for success and achievement, I often take actions that are morally dubious as long as it leads to success. Could you imagine what it would be like as a leader if I were to do something and say, eh, I'm morally dubious. That's what the test tells me. So it's okay. <laughs> or if you're a type 8. Some, the one, the, one of the things that if you're a type 8 uh, is that you often like to be contrarian. Can you imagine somebody arguing, 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 and when you tell them, can you please not argue so much because it's creating discord in the church, the person says, well, I can't help it. I'm a type 8. I'm a contrarian. Sometimes we hide behind personality tests instead of admitting our need to grow and to be reformed according to God's Word. But while the tendency in our society is to downplay sin, I wonder if the church often encounters another difficulty. I wonder if sometimes we give more power to sin than to the God who has forgiven us of our sin. What do I mean by this? I wonder if for some of us, we have no problem accepting that God has forgiven us. But what we find difficult is for us to forgive ourselves. About 20 years ago, there was a movie with Mel Gibson in it. And the beginning of the movie, it begins with this quote that brought chills to my bone at the time. This is what the quote said. I have long feared that my sins would return to visit me, and the cost is more than I can bear. I wonder if some of us understand and know that God is a gracious and forgiving and compassionate God, and we know that He has forgiven us of our sins, but we have a hard time forgiving ourselves. Intellectually, we know and understand that He has forgiven us. But in our hearts, we find it difficult to forgive ourselves. So as a result, we act out of insecurity about our own worth, 
constantly trying to please others, to derive value from others' approval, affirmations, or acclamations. Or perhaps you find it hard to believe that people will truly and genuinely love us. So we put up guards, barriers, and fences to keep others at a distance because we believe that in our hearts of hearts that if they know really what I've done, no one would ever really love me and accept me. So friends, I wonder if some of us need to hear this today. Our reality as a forgiven people of God that there is nothing that we can say, that there is nothing that we can do, that there is nothing in our past, nor will there ever be anything in our future that we can do or say or think that will ever put us beyond God's forgiveness for us in our lives. And if you have any doubts, friends, as to how God sees you, Listen to these words from Colossians chapter 1. Yes, once you were indeed alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now you have been reconciled by Christ's physical body through death. And Christ has presented you to God. And listen to this. As holy in His sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. As a forgiven people of God, let us embrace God's forgiveness in our lives. But there's a second way that we also ought to live as a forgiven people of God, and that's to forgive others of their debts against us. Sometimes it's easy to miss the structure of Matthew 6, verse 12. We focus on forgive us our debts, but we forget that there's a second part to that verse, as we have also forgiven our debtors. The petition for God to forgive us our debts assumes that we have also done the same to others. In a, put it another way, our ability and our willingness to forgive others is a sign that we understand what it means to have received God's mercy. Now, let me be clear about something. I am not suggesting that we earn our forgiveness by forgiving others. In fact, the Bible is clear that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. We are told that even when we were still dead in our transgression, that through His grace, God has given us eternal life. We are also reminded in Scripture, and especially in Matthew chapter 18 today, that if we claim that we understand the mercy and the grace that we have received from God, then we would also be ready to extend that mercy and forgiveness to others. Or to put it another way, if we find it difficult to, to extend mercy and grace to others, it brings up the question if we have truly understood what it means to be forgiven by God. I think this is also what Jesus had in mind when Peter came up to Jesus in the text that was read today. When Peter came up and said, how many times do I have to forgive my brother or sister? Seventy times seven? That's a lot. Jesus, don't you think? Isn't that enough? And Jesus said, no. Unless 
you continue to forgive unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Then you have not truly understood the depth of God's mercy and love. Friends, I wonder if during the course of this sermon, if the Holy Spirit has brought a name or two into your mind. Perhaps it's a friend from a long time ago, a friend with whom you've grown distant over the years because of something that happened between the two of you that you've never quite addressed. Perhaps it's somebody at work that you perceive have done something against you that you've held in your heart. Perhaps somebody in your Bible study, someone who you've been trying to avoid. Perhaps it's somebody even here in this room. Perhaps it's a habit of yours that as you walk in to this place every morning, the first thing you do is to scan the room. And once you see that person sitting there, you turn the other way so you can sit as far away from them as possible. Perhaps it's somebody at a previous church, a church that you've left because of some unresolved conflict. I wonder if the Lord is bringing to mind a name or two, another person with whom forgiveness ought to be extended. I think this is the reason why the petition, Lord, forgive us our sin, follows the petition, give us our daily bread. Just as food is a sustenance that enables our daily living, forgiveness is a sustenance that enables community. And one of the ways that we live as a forgiven people is to extend forgiveness to one another. To begin the sermon, I share with you the story of Celestin. I want to come back to that and tell you what he shared. Celestin lived in the country of Rwanda. You remember the story of the Rwandan genocide. Between April and July 1994, it is estimated that one million Rwandans were killed and three million people fled the country and lived and died in the refugee camps. Celestin was a Rwanda, is a Rwandan Christian who felt called to start a ministry called the African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries. He engaged the Christian community, the church in Rwanda, in a radical ministry of forgiveness and reconciliation. But for four years after the genocide, revenge, hatred, and paybacks continued to take place. And Celestin shared that on December 28, 1997, a group of men came into his village and committed acts of violence at ho on, in homes, on farms, and in church where people had gathered for morning prayer. The people lost, including his father, his stepbrother, his wife, two children, adopted sister. Most of the people lost, he said, were neighbors, friends, and members of his church. Celestin happened to be in Dallas at the time when he received a fax from Rwanda about this terrible news. And this is what he shared. Despite all that I had said and taught, I wanted revenge against those who killed my relatives and the people I had served and loved. 
But that night in Dallas, the Lord confronted me with the hardest challenge of my life. You have been teaching others about repentance and forgiveness. It is now your turn to forgive those who killed your relatives. It is your turn to forgive those who brutally murdered your loved ones, even before you know their names. Either forgive and let me take care of the rest, or fail to forgive and give up your freedom, joy, and peace. And now close with Celestin's ultimate reflection on forgiveness. He said, Indeed, it is the forgiver that pays the cost of forgiveness, even when the forgiven is unaware of the price. God paid the cost of my forgiveness, the unimaginable act of offering the priceless sacrifice of His Son for the forgiveness of sin. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. He died so that I can be forgiven. So God was teaching me that I can choose to forgive regardless of the actions of the offender. I don't have to completely heal from the wounds before I forgive. In fact, the gift of forgiveness does not even have to be received in order for it to be given as a gift. Forgiveness is the gift that I have freely received and that I should unconditionally give. As a forgiven sinner, we are called to forgive. So friend, let us pray. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Let us pray. Oh God, indeed, you are a forgiving, merciful, and compassionate God. Lord, you alone understand the depth of your forgiveness. So we pray, O oh God, that you would give us clarity of mind, conviction of hearts, and understanding of your mercy, compassion, and love. And having done so, Lord God, would you give us the strength to also extend that same forgiveness to others in our lives. Or may we give it freely, just as we have received freely from you. And Lord, we admit that at times it is not easy to extend forgiveness. It is painful. It is hard. So in those moments of God, we pray, pour out your sustaining grace for Upon us. Help us to forgive as you have forgiven us. Pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.